0: Ladies and gentlemen, we're back again against the mob podcast and today school is in session. We have brought back Dr. uh, Matthew Mitchell here from the Mercatus Center in uh, George Mason University uh, to further our education and what we got wrong, what we got right, and uh, maybe just another perspective on this whole view of the GameStop debacle, um, who the winners and losers were. um, And just overall, we just want to hear from somebody who's a little bit smarter than us in this realm that can maybe... Uh, guide us a little bit to see what uh what we might have been spreading as misinformation out there.
1: Yes, thank you very much, Mr. Mitchell. Uh, we had dinner um two Sundays ago and the conversation really got my mind turning and I was like, oh man, um I think maybe we, we got some things wrong. So thank you for uh graciously taking time out of your busy schedule to uh correct the record for us and also move the conversation forward um because we want to talk about GameStop but then we also want to hop into Facebook and um, dive into this conversation about, okay, private businesses, government regulation, where is the line? How should we as liberty loving people approach all of it? So with that being said, um, the floor is yours, sir.
2: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me guys. Uh, you know, I, One thing that occurs to me is it might be helpful to start with this analogy. Um, in the economic blogosphere around the, time, around the year 2009 or 10, uh, this metaphor started emerging. And it was uh, bananas on the roof. And the basic idea is uh, if you had a government policy that subsidized you taking bananas and throwing them on your roof, it was a huge subsidy, you know, $1,000 off your, your income tax every time you put a banana on your roof. And lo and behold, a bunch of people put a bunch of bananas on their roofs so much that roofs across the country were collapsing. Uh, then the question would be, is this market failure or is it government failure? Because a bunch of private people chose to put a bunch of bananas on their roofs until roofs caved in, <laughs> right? And so uh, it was emerging at the time of 2009, 2010, in part because people were discussing uh, you know, the Great Recession and a bunch of private mistakes that were happening, but they were also subsidized, they were encouraged by public policy. And so it does raise the very legitimate question of where, how do you see where private um, mistakes stop and, and government mistakes begin? Uh, and it's it's tricky. It's not always easy to differentiate it. But that uh, that metaphor kind of occurred to me as we were talking about GameStop. Um, and, it, and GameStop, this the phenomenon is just fascinating to me. And it's I think a really uh, interesting way to to unpack, you know, government involvement in financial markets, and also to to illustrate the benefits of financial markets and price signals. So uh, I thought maybe it might be a good good time to revisit that.
1: Yeah, hundred um, percent. And it, after that conversation that we had Sunday, I went home and just scratched my head because you helped you helped explain a lot of things that that I. Perhaps didn't understand, and so can we start with um, let's start with unpacking the whole idea of short selling and why that's not a nefarious thing. Um, because going into going into dinner the other night, I had one opinion, and I walked away. It's just like, well, okay, that I, I think I was wrong. Yeah, I think we
0: both recorded that episode with a a gr- good idea. That smarter people than us understood that this wasn't necessarily nefarious. <laughs> That's about as far well, as
2: well. <laughs> well, let me start. Uh, I like with where you're starting, and I, maybe let's even back it up and start a couple steps before that. So, okay. uh, one thing is, well, you, you know, that your the thrust of your argument in that episode is when government and business collude, watch out. And I totally accept that, you know, that is absolutely something that we should be uh, worried about, you know, as the left uh, leaning Nobel laureate, Joseph Stieglitz once said, when government bails out the private sector, essentially they're privatizing gains and socializing losses. That's not capitalism, right? Uh, And everyone from Milton Friedman to to George Stieglitz can agree to that. So let's be very, very uh, skeptical of, of, you know, big government and big business getting in bed together. Um, so first of all, okay, so what's short selling and why is it good? Well, first of all, let's talk about just even the, the value of financial markets, you know, financial markets allocate capital from people who have it to people who need it. It's, you know, a relatively simple idea, but it, but it really powerful. Uh, you know, most of us in our 20s don't have capital, we need to borrow to go to college or whatever. Um, Most of us, by the time we're in our 60s and 70s, we got a a lot more capital than we have consumption needs. And so we're in a position to lend. And so what capital markets do is they allocate capital, a scarce resource to its highest valued use. Um, And one thing that's important about that is to emphasize that it should go to its highest valued use. And a society is poorer if it routinely shoves capital in place towards endeavors that are not high-valued use, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So, what's cool about financial markets is they encourage people to use their information, their knowledge, to change prices and therefore change where capital goes. So, let's say, you know, it's two thousand and five and you all are, are, have some insights because you're in the housing industry and you're, and you're thinking, you know, there's a lot more houses being built than I think should be, right? Um, you can use that insight to sell stock in housing and housing related industries. And when you do that, it increases supply and lowers the price and draws capital out of those industries towards other things that are where it could be put to better use. Um, healthcare, education—who knows? But that's a good thing. You're 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 selling a stock, and you're 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 um, correcting uh, a market mistake. You know, if prices are too high in an area, you want to you. We want to incentivize people who have information to correct that. I mean, I wish a lot more people had sold stock in housing and related. Industries in the you know few years before two thousand eight and nine because we might have avoided that terrible recession right so what do you do if you don't own the stock well you can still bet on your you can still use your information so let's say Matt Billingsley has insider information or uh, insider information is such a, a loaded term let's say you have greater knowledge than the rest of us. Um, you have greater insights, but you don't happen to own the stock that you think is overvalued. Well, Logan owns the stock. So what you do is you borrow the stock from Logan and you turn around and you sell it to Matt Mitchell, who I, I, I don't, I'm not as well informed as Billingsley, right? So you turn around and you sell it to me and then you wait because you think it's going to go down. And sure enough, if it goes down, then... You've sold high and then you buy it back from somebody else at the lower price and give that back to Logan. And you're in, through that process. You basically do the same thing that you would do if you had owned it in the sense that you sell it, increase supply and lower the price. And that you are able to profit by correcting an incorrect price by using your information, your superior knowledge to Push price in a better direction. Now, Elon Musk doesn't like the, proce- the, the process of short selling because, you know, in part he, he's had some of his company
0: experience. Yeah,
2: <laughs> right. But follow the you know follow the ball here. Every single links every single uh, link in this chain is a voluntary transaction. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Robert Nozick and as he pointed out the socialist society would have to outlaw consenting or a capitalist acts between consenting adults every step in this chain is a um capitalist act between a consenting adult you know when i sell my my stock to if 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 we switch it around and say i'm the company and i and i need to raise capital and i sell sell the stock i'm not precluding you from turning around and shorting it or reselling it or or borrowing it and selling it um through a short sale you know that None of that is uh, illegal and in fact it's actually a pretty beneficial service by correcting an incorrect stock. So that's kind of even before we get to what was going on with GameStop, I think it's, it's valuable to point out the, the really socially beneficial role that short sellers play and anybody who sells a stock plays because they're taking their personal information and making it public, they're earning a profit by correcting an incorrect price.
0: That's really interesting. I do like uh before I say anything relevant here. Uh, I think it's hilarious how nobody can say GameStop anymore. I think you just said GameStop and I know Matt did it a couple times in our <laughs> episode about it. So just a little I don't even hear myself there. saying
2: it. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: pretty good. So I guess what that kind of brought into my head while you were saying that is um when you have these sort of artificial positions where obviously they weren't buying into GameStop because they had a great greater insight into how GameStop was about to make a great comeback, but rather they were doing it conversely to the reaction of these short sellers. Uh, I would imagine if it has an important position in balancing the market through short selling, then what does it do negative effect wise when they do a kind of an artificial reversal of that same action to correct a price?
2: Yeah, okay, so a couple of things there. So first of all, let's actually, uh, what you just said, I think is true, but it's not quite as true as everybody has made it out to be. You know, and what I mean by that is, uh, okay, what's an ideal stock to sh- to short? An ideal stock to short is one that is, everybody thinks is doing pretty well, but you know, you have greater insight and you think actually, oh, this company stinks. Uh, and to that, from that perspective, GameStop, I think I said it correctly, is not an (laughs) ideal stock for the short sellers to have short sold so much because everybody sort of knew it was bad, right? Um, So there is an argument to be made that the short sellers probably overplayed their game. And there was some beneficial uh, position, there was some beneficial activity in trying to push it back up a little bit. Which is why, by the way, there were actually, uh, you know, sophisticated traders on both sides of it. A lot of people wanted to tell the story that it was all the sophisticated money was on the shorting and all the retail guys were on the, the going long. Well, that's not true. It was a little bit. There were longs on both or there were sophisticated people on both sides of the bet. So in any case, were the guys that were trying to uh, bring it back up? uh entirely motivated by uh, the Reddit communication. I think they were largely motivated motivated by that, but there is an argument to be made that they were actually to some degree, just pushing it a little bit closer to, to its reality. Is reality $400, $500 above? No, not at all.
1: Not for GameStop.
2: Right, right, not for GameStop. So anyway, back to your question though. Um, so now you add this interesting element of people trading not to create, uh, you know, because they have greater insight, but just because they wanted to stick it to the man, I guess. Um, well, my perspective there is if you trade against reality, eventually reality bites you in the butt. And that's kind of the real tragedy here is they tried to push it up so far above what, what it, what's its fundamentals that, of they they tried to make it levitate there and it's not going to levitate there. And so that actually ironically gave short sellers an ability to make a profit by pushing it back down. Right. <laughs> and it also definitely uh, screwed some other fellow um, retail traders who just, you know, got in too late and they were held, uh, they, they were, they were left holding the bag. So, The idea of the of the little guys, you know, David going against Goliath, it's more like David going against against a bunch of other Davids who got in too late.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That makes a lot of sense, and um, I think that is something important to point out that there is a tragedy of when when all this fervor is really going on, and you get a bunch of people kind of buying in the frenzy of the of that narrative that is running amok at that moment. It's like, we're sticking it to wall street. Let's go guys. You know, it's like diamond hands to the moon is what they were all saying. And when you're buying in it, you know, when GameStop is at three, $400, which I mean, you, you were correct. There was, there was no, there's no reason for GameStop to be up that high because it's just not that valuable of a stock. And so you do get a bunch of people that are holding and holding and they're all holding together. It's almost like the ice at the bottom of a cup where they're just like, hold, hold, hold. And right. then one person leaves and it starts the, the plummet down. And before you know, it drops from, you know, it's at $400. And within a couple of days, it's down under a hundred. And a yep. lot of people, you know, Definitely. And I guess it's, I guess it is the lesson when you play with fire, you're going to get burned.
2: Yeah. I think that's part of it. I think it's also an interesting lesson in, uh, you what, uh, one of my colleagues, Martin Gurry, he's got a book called uh, the revolt of the public and it's, he's not a financial expert at all, but he's studying, he's a former CIA analyst actually. And he, he has studied these mass movements and, uh, you know, if you look back over the last decade it's, um, and see these mass public revolts against the elites uh, driven by what he calls uh, homo informaticus. So this new empowered person who's, who through social media can throw stones at, uh, you know, elites and actually topple them. Uh, and so it's the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement. It's the Tea Party movement. It's the Yellow Jacket revolts in Europe. Um, there were similar Occupy type uh, revolts in uh, Israel and Spain. Would Arab Spring fall under that Arab as Spring, well? absolutely. Um, and then uh, Barack Obama's ascendancy and then uh, uh, Donald Trump's ascendancy. All, what all of these have in common is like unorganized networks of previously kind of unempowered people rising up knocking elites off their pedestal but not being organized enough to actually propose anything constructive in its place right and so it's like oh I'm angry but then there's nothing really to show for it and I think that's a lot of what you see here this is the first time it's struck uh, a financial institution but it's uh, pretty uh, it, it actually seems pretty familiar if you've if you've uh, looked into some of those movements
0: you no know, that's interesting too and I think that uh... I say it all the time that part of the uh, issue of democracy failing us and where it falls short is the uneducated voter base and the number of people who have an influence in it. So that's a really interesting uh, uh, tie in with that now Mm -hmm. that we have all these groups that are empowered. But if you have a group that's empowered out of ignorance, then you're going to get results that come out of ignorance.
2: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, as public choice economists have emphasized for a while that, uh, not only are voters rationally ignorant, but in some cases, they're rationally irrational in the sense that they don't even have an incentive to think through things. And I think uh, the advent of social media has made us, you know, really empowered all of us, including uh, those of us who indulge in irrational thought.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, it reminds me, um, and you you told this to me, so now I'm just parroting what you said to me, but it's, um, was it Jefferson talking about the Adams? How they were just more interested in tearing things down, but didn't have a, a backup, a backup plan with how we're actually going to rebuild?
2: Yeah, that's right. I think it was John Adams talking about Samuel Adams, his cousin, and um, maybe um, uh, ooh, a bunch of snow just fell down the side. I was <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think it was John Adams talking about Sam Adams and maybe like, um, it, Patrick Henry saying that they're better at tearing down than building up,
0: gotcha. which is probably to be fair an easier process. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, examples in history where big revolts happened against these terrible, tyrannical leaders. And then within a year, they're then executing the leaders of said rebellion because right. they didn't like the solutions they came up exactly. with.
2: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: The French revolution is a really good example of that, where, you know, you get rid of the monarchy, but then you get the Jacobin takeover and you get people like Maximilian um, who creates the terror. And before you know it, you know, at a certain point, they're like, well, this guy's a tyrant too. We should probably lop his head off, you know? And so exactly. it's just this, this cyclical nature of like the, the snake almost eating itself. Right,
2: right. Now there's one other aspect to the GameStop uh, saga that I did want to address because it too, uh, when you first look at it, you, I had kind of the same reaction you did, which is Robin Robinhood's uh, role in all of this. Uh, so we know Robinhood did stop people from buying the stock uh, and they weren't stopping people from shorting it. And so that looks real fishy, right? When you first see that, that sounds like they're, they're up, up to no good. There is sort of a boring explanation for that though. Um, so for whatever reason, when you buy or sell a stock in the United States, it takes three days to clear. And so when Robinhood actually, uh, you know, allows you to buy a stock, that they don't settle the trade. They work with a clearing house that does that. It's called the DTCC. It's the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. It was, a, it was created by Dodd-Frank as a way to try to um, minimize risk. And basically what, what happens is they, what Robinhood makes it appear that you have bought the stock You know, you you, you actually get like a, you know, confetti show up in your app, right? And you get to see the money right there and you just think it's happened. But really what's happening is they're lending that to you for a few days and they need capital to back that, that loan. And as it turns out, the DTCC, Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, increases its capital requirements. When a, cert, a stock becomes particularly volatile, so lo and behold, they as the nobody anticipated that there would be a Reddit-driven frenzy in GameStop. You know, you can blame Robinhood for not anticipating that, but I didn't anticipate it. You guys didn't anticipate it. It's kind of a weird thing, right? right? So, right. so suddenly DTCC said, "Okay, guys, you got to pony up. We need a, several billion dollars more here if you want to keep." Trading, so they didn't have. I actually, near as I can tell, Robinhood was pretty transparent about this. Uh, You know, these are not like longtime players in the financial markets, but they they went out and were like, they just said, "Folks, we need to raise some more capital here." And I I think the number is something like three billion. Um, And they went out and actually raised it pretty quickly. But in the meantime, they they did stop selling. They or they did stop allow they they, they made it so that people couldn't uh, buy. Um, now, there is a, somebody has made the argument that the DTCC may have broken some laws because what they should have done is disclosed that this this to the public that they were suddenly asking Robinhood to pony up more capital. Um, or there is an argument to be made that they were actually um, in essentially hoarding information and not uh, breaking some rules by not disclosing that. I don't know enough about the details of, of the law there to say whether that's true, but the to me the most um, there's a stronger case to be made that the DTCC itself is, is the one that was not really being transparent and not being, and potentially breaking rules, not Robin Hood. Uh, and then also you add the fact to this, at the end of the day, what's going to happen? Well, I worry that um, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Josh Hawley are going to come together and impose regulations that are going to probably make the whole thing worse. Uh you know, among the things that they're talking about is they they worry that Robin Hood has quote gamified um uh investing. You know, that's such a paternalistic view of it that uh, that uh, we can't trust the idiots who who, you know, spend their days gaming. To possibly uh, engage in trading. Well, that's ultimately going to end up being, you know, a situation where, you know, the, the retail traders are shut down by Elizabeth Warren and others. That that worries me. Um, I think when you look back at the whole episode, the markets worked pretty well, including Robinhood.
0: And that's really interesting. I know I heard a lot of stories of people who were talking about how Robinhood was intentionally turning down their trades that they had orders in and that makes a lot more sense now to hear that they have this 3 day delay and that they they right. actually ran out of capital in order to to continue to place those um so i think that is interesting to know um it's also really interesting that that story just did not seem to hit anybody's ears this this really just got painted as look how much they're they're screwing you over um which i i as a small state guy i'm pretty happy to see that cuz i think that's a good sign, as Matthew and I say, a lot of people taking the red pill and and realizing that perhaps this state isn't uh, our our all father and this perfect thing that's going to take care of us all. Right. Um, and I do worry about exactly what you're saying, that, that this is going to probably lead to some form of regulation. And it's really unlikely that the guys who are paying for these politicians to get in there are going to be the ones that end up getting their hands tied behind
2: their backs with this. Right. And, you know, it's a good illustration. I just think of that there's a little glitch in our brains right that causes us to want to see all outcomes as either the result of a good guy or a bad guy right and i think in far, far more frequently it's better you're on safer ground if you attribute, attribute bad activity to human bumbling than to, you know, humans being evil. And that includes us as libertarians, we need to be careful about that too. You know, I don't think the, the uh, you know, my reasons for being suspicious of government are not because I think everybody in government is, is, you know, ill-intentioned. It's more about the institutions. I think that the the, the boneheaded person who makes a mistake in the market pays a price. And Robinhood, you know, the example of the, the uh, Redditors uh, bidding up GameStop stock uh, is a good example. <laughs> uh, but that same person also is, uh, you know, pulling the levers in the voting booth. It's the exact same person, but there they don't pay a price when they make mistakes. We don't get that same feedback when we interact in institutions of, of politics, but we, are, we pay a big price for our irrationality when we interact in institutions and markets.
0: That's a really good point too. And I think we do have a tendency to use that language of, of tyrants and despots and these uh, you know, and I think it's because we really want to convince people that there are these issues, these things are leading to, to atrocities around the world. Um, but you're right. I mean, we've said that before on this podcast, it's not that there's a wizard behind the curtain that's controlling everything or, or Lex Luthor is behind the scenes somewhere. It is a lot of these momentum of the inst- institutions at place uh, and the military industrial complex being a big, probably the biggest one there that, that at least we want to point out. Um, and that it's really just the momentum of these things that you don't, in the same way you get a job in an industry, you might do things that you don't necessarily agree for that company because that is your objective. That's what you're getting paid for. And, and in this particular thing, even though you may think this might not be the most moral act or you may not agree with the direction it's going, you have an obligation to earn your paycheck in the end.
2: Right. Right. Yeah, you can break it down. There's a number of, of you know, problems that are going on. It's, there's an incentive problem um, and there's an information problem. But uh, so for on the incentives, uh, I always like to compare Donald Trump, the businessman, to Trump, Donald Trump, the politician. You know, when he's betting his own money, assuming he can't manipulate, uh, use uh, the uh, bankruptcy uh, laws to renege on his obligations, which he probably has been able to. But, uh, you know, when he when he's using his own money, he has an incentive to look at both the costs and benefits and rationally weigh them. But when he's, role, he's playing with somebody else's money, as he was, for example, in um, uh, the in, investment in um, uh, Foxconn in Wisconsin, uh, you know, he was able to uh, invest in a company that he didn't really have any interest in the returns, so it didn't need to be a good. It didn't need to be a high. Uh, the benefits didn't need to be that high, and he was. It wasn't footing his own money, so he didn't need to worry about the cost. So he, you know the, the, he just had no skin in the game. And then when you when you deal with the fact that politicians are are not operating on price on pro, uh, market signals of prices, profit and loss, he's basically investing blind. So uh, you take the very same person. And you move them from one institutional arrangement, the private sector, to another institutional arrangement, the public sector, and they're going to make very different decisions.
1: That makes a hundred percent sense. Yeah. And so, would it be fair to say is this a mischaracterization that Robin Hood is a victim in a lot of ways? Because one, the public image, right? Because I was even extremely critical. I got the same emails because I have a Robin Hood, ac- I have a Robin Hood account, and I, I rejected that. I, you know, when they sent me those emails, it's like, Oh, this is why we have to do it's Like, yeah, you guys are just playing damage control. <laughs> but, you know They have the same. So if, if the playing field is, isn't quite level, you know, is it, is it fair to say that Robin hood is, is a victim because they, maybe they don't have the same access to capital that these, uh, that these bigger, um, that these bigger hedge funds have, you know, because they are a retail trader trying to democratize markets.
2: Well, I mean, near as I can tell, they managed to raise, I think it was $1.5, $2 billion or something like that in in, uh, 12 hours, uh, less than that. So, uh, you know, these guys actually did get it together pretty darn quickly. Um, So... um, I'm not sure how on level it is. You know, basically the way markets work is people make mistakes and they're punished for them. And Robinhood made a mistake. They didn't plan on this and they, they were punished some way. Um, but they also uh, new guys come along and exploit opportunities uh, and Robinhood Uh, came along and exploited the opportunity. And I don't mean exploit in a negative way. I mean, they see somebody else not meeting a a demand and are able to meet that to to, uh, essentially exploit the fact that somebody else is sleeping on the job and create some value. And so, you know, I I noticed since the rise of Robinhood, some of the more traditional players, uh, you'll notice are offering apps where you can, essentially engage in the same kind of retail, easy type trading. Um, so I think that's, and in, in trading on commission has gone way, way, you know, the, the, the costs have gone way down. It really has democratized it. Um, but one of the things that's that you all often see when an innovator comes along is sometimes the innovator breaks it open and challenges the existing incumbents. And then sometimes it's a second or third generation who comes along and actually does it right? That cleans up, that that manages to to uh, stick around. And I don't know, maybe Robin Hood will be around in ten years, but it wouldn't surprise me if they've broken down the door and now we're going to see, you know, a lot more uh, newcomers coming in and and uh, allowing more democratized trade.
0: And I'm sure no matter what the truth on this is, uh, the image hit that Robin Hood took is going to be pretty tough to overcome. I know that okay. I saw Webull is another one of these sites that uh, was blowing up over that weekend when when they had kind of shut down stocks on Robin Hood. So yeah. who knows? They may even just be buried by the story at this point in time.
2: Right, right.
0: Unless less our uh, 50 viewers or so sway that in the, the episode release here.
2: Right. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, one other point, while we're while we're uh, dispensing financial advice to all your uh, your uh, listeners, is um, it's really risky to to pick stocks, and uh, you know, market economics has a really good lesson in this. You know, which is basically that if you have access to superior information, you'll trade on it and correct the stock price. You know, so if you know that a company is undervalued and you buy it you will raise the the price. If you know a company is overvalued and you sell it or you short it, that'll lower the price and correct it. And so um, if you're looking at a stock and you think that it's under or overvalued, you better be darn sure that you think your information is better than the thousands of other people out there because you're essentially making the bet that you think you know better than the market. And um, most of us don't. So I'm not an active trader, uh, you know. I just, I, I, uh, I invest, but I a widely diversified portfolio that is basically, you know, equivalent to the entire S&P 500. A little bit of every company in the S&P 500. That's a much safer way of doing it than, you know, downloading the app and, uh, you know, picking individual stocks. So, which is not to say people shouldn't do that if they, you know, have great knowledge or or if they are a little risk preferring and they and they think it's fun. There's nothing wrong with that. But um, buyer beware. It's it's not a it's not a safe uh, environment.
0: And I definitely know a lot of friends who uh, were avid poker players in college who have kind of far gone poker to to play stocks in their living room on the weekend. Mm-hmm. So there certainly are people that kind of play it like you would video poker online and. Sure. a couple bucks and hey that can be fun too why not have a little hobby absolutely yeah
1: 100% because i i have a i have a robin hood app um i trade and i dabble in like cryptocurrencies right but very small amounts right i'm, I'm spending 50 dollars a month just buying all of these random cryptocurrencies that i see online right. but at the same time when it comes to like real investments I give it to a mutual fund advisor, right? Because there's someone else who I would rather pay someone commissions on the trades that he makes. That's his job. He studies the market. I give him X amount of dollars every month. He makes those investments for me. And and you're hundred percent correct because I had to take, you know, almost like a risk profile so that my, my financial advisor could figure out what is the best, you know, where you know what what mutual funds should we be looking into so just to move the conversation forward a little bit how do we like how how do you how let's say that um just taking this down to like this bare minimum argument where we talk about like it's it's freer markets that you know that uh that raise raise the economic standard of everybody right And there's so there's so many examples of that in the 20th century and even the 21st century Uh, 21st century, but how do we reconcile the idea of like regulation to the point of uh, consumer protection until it becomes like this, this beast that is so cumbersome that it's now holding us back, right? Like, how do we, how do we as uh, freedom loving people try to balance the you know, how much, how much regulation do you need? Because it's like, you know, I like clean drinking water. Therefore, I don't mind testing standards for that, even though that you know there is a market incentive not to kill your users in terms of like poisoned water. But uh, can can you can you try to break
2: that down for us? Well, I think one thing that's helpful is to say, uh, you know, we you definitely want regulations that are police property rights. Another way to say that is a regulation that. Uh, you know, says that you aren't allowed to squat on my land is great. (laughs) And a regulation that uh, says that you can't um, commit fraud or deception is equivalent to that. You know, that's when the FTC or the, or the, um, uh, the, the SEC investigates uh, Bernie Madoff for fraud, that's, you know, more power to them. That's what, that's what their job is. They're making sure that people can't lie. And there are ways, you know, to um, manipulate stocks. It basically involves uh, agreeing or making it seem like you're buying something when or selling something when you're really not. And so there's, a, you know, like the, a famous example is uh, 1929. There was this like pool of, of investors that pretended to, to uh trade in i think it was uh radio stock it might have been rca um and it turns out that they you know made it appear that they were all buying but they really weren't they were just selling to themselves so that's that's deception right and so that there's nothing wrong with policing deception or fraud um but uh, we need to be really skeptical about regulation other types of regulations that purport to keep us from harming ourselves. Uh, and i'll give you a few examples. I think the um, in the world of occupational licensure that may be you know one of the best ways to illustrate this. So uh, you go back 50 years ago about five percent of the u.s population needed a license in order to practice their jobs right Now it's about 29 percent. And what that mostly reflects is increase in licensed occupations, not more people moving into healthcare or things like that, uh, that previously needed a license. So now there are thousands of occupations that require a license, everything from uh, uh, real estate, real estate, yes, uh, to tour guides, to interior decorators, uh, 50%. or or, sorry, 50 out of 50 states require a license for cosmetology. Uh, There's licenses for barbering. Um, Now, all of these these licenses require those who obtain them to spend um, time, money, and effort passing tests, uh, taking exams. Um, or I'm sorry, in cl- taking, taking a certain number of hours of class classes. And quite often the, the requirements don't make sense. So on average, cosmetologists have to spend 10 times as many hours in education as an EMT. <laughs> right. Uh, and that's average. So some states it's, it's 15 times, you know, it's crazy. Um, and so what is, what's the effect of that? Well, you you'd say, well, Let's start with the the what we know about the bad stuff. So, licensure raises prices. Um, about fifty ranges, you know, different in different occupations, but it's uh, ten to fifteen percent. Um, so that has a harm to people who use these services it also prices some people out of the services altogether. So electricians, for example, in states where they are more heavily licensed, people are less likely to use electricians and we actually I think I mentioned this to you before, but you know, people are actually less uh, more likely to try do it yourself jobs and actually electrocutions are more are statistically significantly more common in states with higher burdens for electrician uh, licensure because it means that people like me do home improvements and end up, uh, in trouble. Right. So, um, so that, so we know that it raises prices. The second thing is that it does seem to have a disparate impact on certain populations. So, um, ethnic minorities, people for whom English is a second language, um, those who have prior convictions, um, military spouses or those who move around frequently, all of immigrants, all of these categories are people who tend to be blocked out by licensure that, that tend to, to be kept out of work. Is it worth it? Well, let's now turn to the to the the final thing is quality. You know, they say licensure increases quality. The evidence is actually not there. So, uh, of all the studies that look at it, a majority of them can't find any any effect. Uh, of the studies that find an effect, they're three times more likely to find that it depresses quality than that it enhances quality. Um, and by the way, these are things that, like the Obama administration, admit. You know, this they had a great report in two thousand fifteen studying all that that, that um, showed all this. So my point here is that uh, regulations. You know, if, if government can't get you know a regulation of a plumber correct. Why do we think that they're going to get regulation of, you know, derivatives and uh, short selling and highly complex financial uh, trades correct? Um, chances are they're probably not, you know, more like I said, if they want to if they want to try to investigate Bernie Madoff and others, of course, they didn't. They failed. That's their one job and they didn't get him. Um, You know, they let him practice for years uh, defrauding people. Uh, But, you know, if you can find if they want to try to keep people from fraud and deception, that's great. But regulations that try to protect us from ourselves, they tend to have a lot of unintended consequences. That's really
0: interesting. Do they have something that they point to for why the quality actually tends to decrease when they regulate like this?
2: Yeah, so there's a couple of things. One is the do-it-yourself mechanism. It's it's when prices go up, people are less likely to, to um, uh, go to the service provider. So that's been documented, for example, in electricians. It's also been documented uh, for oral hygienists. Stricter licensure around oral hygienists raises the price of going to a dentist, and it means that you don't go to the dentist as often. Um, same thing with up. Um, uh, op- I'm going to mess it up. Opticians, you know, there's ophthalmologists who are the M.D.s, and then there's opticians who are the people who fit the glasses to you. Greater licensure uh, of them it tends to be associated with people skipping going to go see get new uh, get a new pair of glasses. So there's that factor, and then the other factor is just very simple. As it turns out, uh, competition enhances quality.
0: I knew that was and when, you
2: re- when you reduce <laughs> when you reduce competition, you tend to get a lower quality product.
0: So yeah, those yeah. two
2: factors, you know, basically, not in every case, but in most cases, seem to outweigh the the quality enhancement effect of, of licensure.
0: And I did figure that was probably the the immediate when you said that. Um, you know, if you're going to make the case, that would be the first thing I would say is, well, how does the free market address these? industries having the poor quality and it w- that would be the number one answer of course is competition always is that there're going to be limited slots in this marketplace for hairdressers so if you don't give a license for somebody to cut hair eventually somebody's going to go out of business because people are going to stop showing up there to get their hair hacked
2: right it is and but it's it's even more complex than that because uh it's not just competition with you know your immediate competitors but other products and services help increase quality so uh, you know, there are lots of private dealers in information, everybody from Angie's list to better business bureau uh, to now uh, you guys may not even remember a time before Google reviews and Yelp, right. Um, those have revolutionized things, you know, that they do more for consumer knowledge than regulators did in a century of trying to in, improve, you know, social or, or uh, service regu- regulation. So um and was there's the, also social media as, as a regulator, right? If you get a bad experience and you put it on Facebook, uh, you know, the, the sellers are going to respond and change pretty darn quickly.
0: What was the mechanism before uh, those types of things like Yelp and, and Facebook for people to go after managers' heads and try to get them fired based on? <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I mean, there was uh, the the... Oldest ones are things like uh, Underwriters Laboratory, which if you if you take any piece of electronics in your house and you turn it upside down, you'll see a UL, uh, and they you know go to a private that's a private company that tests electronics to see if they're safe. And companies sell you know want that they want their stuff tested because they with the UL consumers will and and more and and uh, retailers also look for that when they they look to you know stock certain types of products. They, they want that. Um, also insurance companies, that's another mechanism that increases, that enhances quality. Right. Um, so, you know, a physician that doesn't um, I always, you, you know, people, when they talk about licensure, they say, well, you want anybody to be a brain surgeon? Um, usually I say, let's start with a cosmetologist and then right. we'll have that fun discussion <laughs> about the brain surgeon. Right. But well, you know, even if you do want to go there, it's not licensure that keeps um, that, that keeps medicine safe. In most states, psychiatrists are licensed, as far as the state is concerned, to perform brain surgery. Psychiatrists, they're, they're MDs, you know, they may have done it once in their training. Why don't they actually do that? Because the medical malpractice would be through the roof, right? <laughs> yeah. And because uh, uh, hospitals would revoke their privileges if they started doing irresponsible things like that. And occasionally it does happen, you know, it's, and they do revoke their privileges, but that's really what keeps us safe, not um, licensure.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so just on that same note, let's, let's kind of let's switch gears and uh, hop into social media platforms and uh their, their role as a private company versus the public forum. So to set this up, um, there's a really good um, live with Malice, which is Michael Malice, and he has Will Chamberlain come on. And they have a very nice, you know, uh, friendly debate, so to speak, about the idea where, where Michael Malice says it's a private company. It doesn't matter what they do because it's a private company. Will Chamberlain takes the other side where he says that at a certain point when you have so many users of it um and it, it and it's replaced the public square so to speak where we don't now go down to the public forum and all talk and converse and there's the boy on on the you know on the 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 box with the newspaper read all about it and stuff like that that it, it no longer functions as a private company and therefore should be regulated like a like a public utility so to speak i definitely lean on the it's a private company they should be able to do what they what they'd like. But um, something that you brought up to me in our conversation the other night was this idea of regulation through raised eyebrows. And to this day, I, that, that was an eye opening um, conversation to me. Because um, well, I'll, I'll let you take the floor from here. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the show to introduce our newest sponsor. I am beyond thrilled to let you guys know about Lauren Zotti Coffee. That's right, I said it, Lorenzati Coffee. Lorenzati Coffee brings premium, authentic Italian coffee right to your front door. Even though a trip to the rolling hills of Tuscany is preferable, you can taste the flavors right from your kitchen in any town in America. Lorenzati Coffee was founded and is run by two liberty-loving entrepreneurs whose passion is coffee. They believe coffee should be more than burnt beans brewed into a cup of sugar, hurriedly served by someone just counting the minutes until their next break. So go check them out to get Premium Cafe de Italiano dropped off right at your front door. When you check out, use the promo code ATM10 for 10% off your purchase. Again, use the promo code ATM10. That is A as in against, T as in the, and M as in mob. It's a win, win, win. You get great coffee and help support a small business just trying to sling some beans and in turn help them support us. You can find them online at Lorenzotti.coffee. All right, let's hop back into the show.
2: Yeah, so this is a basic idea that um, regulators have an extraordinary amount of power outside of actually you know, imposing fines, uh, issuing cease and desist orders and the like. And that power is quite akin to the power that a parent has who looks at their kid, who's doing something bad, or maybe they're not doing something bad, and they raise their eyebrow. And uh, essentially, if you if you look at the history, in my view, if you look at the history of how regulators and public policymakers have approached social media companies, it's you've seen a large increase in regulation through raised eyebrow in the last five years. So it was pretty well known for years that Facebook and Twitter had zero interest in policing the content of their the users, right? They didn't want to get into this business. Uh, it was a headache for them. Yes, they were going to stop people who posted videos of ISIS beheadings or pedof- you know pedophilia or something like that. But beyond those obvious examples, they didn't want to be the arbiters of truth. It's too messy. Well, what I think two things have changed that in the last few years. One is traditional media has been very scared by the rise of social media and has been happy to point out in any and every time somebody posts something that's untrue or controversial on social media. Mm-hmm. And then two, you have Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders on the left and Josh Hawley and others on the right, increasingly berating the social media for the content. And that is, they, they have openly... Every time they haul those 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 CEOs up there uh, to Congress and berate them, they are practicing regulation through raised eyebrow, and that I think is what has caused this the uh, social media companies increasingly to start policing content. Um, now, uh, you, there's also a, a case to be made that, uh, you know, personally I think a lot of what Donald Trump's fans were posting was pretty. Borderline. I don't know if it's ISIS. It's not ISIS beheading, but it. You know, you could make the case that a lot of people didn't want to see uh, just flat-out lies or or crazy stuff. But whatever, for whatever reason, they chose to crack down on on it. And uh, I, I'm not entirely sure that. Again, we're back to the bananas on the roof. I'm not entirely sure that that's private behavior. It's private behavior reacting to the concern about reg, about uh, re- regulators cracking down. And. What really has me worried is I don't know where the line should be drawn, but I'd like it to be many lines to be drawn by many different companies and then have them redraw them. And in, 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 in a very messy process, let's try to figure out a lot of different ways to, to do this. Cause we don't really know the one right way. And what I see uh, Josh Hawley and Bernie Sanders pushing us towards is one line drawn by the median member of the Federal Communications Commission. Right. Uh, and we don't actually have to imagine what that'll be like for about 70 years under the Fairness Doctrine and other other um, practices of the FCC. The FCC absolutely policed content of radio stations. You know, if you wanted to buy or sell a radio station, you, ha- you would – have to go to the FCC and ask for permission, and they would say, "What kind of content is going to be on here? Is there going to be religious programming? Because they want, they actually wanted some religious programming. Is there going to be? Um, you're not going to be talking about communist things, are you? You know, lots of people that wanted to talk about, you know, have radio programs featuring socialism. Which, for the record, socialism is empirically uh, a, a bad, bad idea. But people should be allowed to talk about it. Um, right. They will deny." It.
0: Yeah, you can't uh, tell them how bad of an idea it is until you catch them in those verbal traps or those inconsistencies. You've got to have yes, these conversations. Course, right? <laughs> yeah, right? just shouting them down's never convinced anybody of anything. You definitely have to have this free back and forth of ideas in order to bring anybody over to your side, I believe.
2: Right, yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, it's, it's worthwhile pointing out the in- incredible flowering of new media, uh, even to the point of, you know, the... Uh, what we're seeing on television, you know, it was not so long ago that the head of the FCC was describing in the 1960s television as a vast wasteland because there were three or four TV options and they were all pretty bad. So I mean, now with over the top streaming, we've got access to, you know, it's really the golden age of entertainment, right? I mean, every, so many programs are such high quality and, you know, you add social media and other things. It's really, you know, it's an impressive time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so it it does make, it does make me wonder that maybe, maybe we're, maybe we're being a little bit too reactionary when, um, when we sit there and say like, Oh, well, this, well, we need to regulate Facebook or we need to regulate Twitter. We need to rein them in because as you pointed out at one point, people were talking about, is anything ever going to rival Napster? Is my, is, has my space gotten too big? I mean, who uses MySpace anymore? Right. A lot of, a lot of people, I mean, I'm on the, I'm on the, the verge of the age limit that knows what Napster even is. And so maybe we, so maybe we as libertarians, um, are are playing into this, and we are, and we are being reactionary. And as you told me, that you know, it, it is the uh, it is the phenomenon of the bootlegger and the Baptist. And we might be un, unwittingly playing the role of the Baptist in this uh, this situation.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And you know, the for those of you who don't know that metaphor, it's a it's a theory of regulation that tries to explain blue laws that don't that don't allow you to sell liquor on Sundays. You know, these are obviously promoted by groups like uh, Baptists and others who are interested in limiting sin, but they're also ironically promoted by bootleggers themselves who are happy to have one day a week where they don't have to compete with the legitimate folks. And almost every regulation has that dynamic where there's a public obvious reason for why you have it, and then there's the real, uh, there's, uh, a reason why at least the special interest might be happy to have that regulation as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that is a, I've, I've noticed become something with the marijuana industry that's become very big and exactly the same thing you're talking about where uh, most of, or a lot of the really big anti-marijuana people were the people who were selling it illegally on the side. Cause they're like, this is going to kill my pricing, man. I get to charge what I want to right now. I'm the only game in town. And if the dollar store starts selling it, then I don't have the market cornered anymore.
2: That's right. I think that the uh, Medical Marijuana Association of California opposed recreational marijuana sales uh, <laughs> when they were on the ballot a few years ago.
1: I think the it's same has happened in New Mexico.
2: <laughs> yeah. Where, yeah.
1: Um, it, you know, where, where it turned out, and I'm not here to get conspiratorial by any means, but it did turn out that when when it was struck off the ballot in, I believe, 2016, it came out uh, that the governor at the time uh, her husband was a silent partner in one of the largest medicinal grows, mm-hmm. and and it's where and it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because when you open it up to recreation, now all of a sudden the medical you don't have to have people funnel in and and you know reach for whatever medical issue they need to get a card, and your your competition is a lot is a lot less. But um, so then what would be the what do you think that? Um, you know um, let's just say it like a pure libertarian solution to what is going on in terms of like, like these calls for regulation, like what, what, what is, what is your, what's the framework as Liberty loving people that we should be looking at this through?
2: So, I mean, I go back to the first amendment, which I think is a a really a beautiful and actually relatively uh, successful institution in the United States. Uh, over the years, it's withstood, I think, a lot of uh, assaults. Um, and it says, government shall make no law. That's the beginning, right? You know, some of us might prefer that that would be the end. <laughs> but, you know, it says, government shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or about prohibiting its free, the, uh, free exercise thereof or limiting the power of, of the press. Uh, the freedom of the press. And the point here is that it's a limit on Congress's ability to interfere. It does not, it emphatically does not stop Facebook from choosing whom they want to associate with. You know, in the same way that McDonald's may choose to deplatform me if I walk in without my shirt or my, my shoes, they have that right. It's their, I didn't build it. Um, Congress didn't build it. McDonald's built it, right? Uh, that's their company, right? Um, and the same thing goes for Facebook. The right of disassociation is is a totally legitimate private uh, right that all of us have and should have, right? Um, but I think if there were, you know, there was a proposal. I think in a, in a, I want to say Finland, in one of the Scandinavian countries, that they were going to fine this exorbitant amount, you know, impose huge fines on companies that deplatformed. Uh, I would actually reverse that. What if we find any legislator who uh, even hinted at infringing on the First Amendment, who you know raised their raised their eyebrow and said, Facebook, you better change your behavior. Uh, I like, I think that would be a much better approach to it uh, and would allow, you know, it limit, it would limit regulation through raised eyebrow and it would allow uh, companies to offer their own types of strategies. And some are going to be more uh, permissive and some are going to be less permissive. And that's fine. We want lots of people to draw, like I said, lots of different lines uh, and redraw them all the time. And, you know, again, back to the, to the McDonald's example, you know, mcdonald's draws the line at not wearing your your shirt right if you go up to a taco uh stand on the beach they're not going to draw the line there and if you wear uh you know what you could wear at mcdonald's in a fine restaurant they're going to draw the line somewhere else you know Mm -hmm. it's totally acceptable for people to have different lines drawn all over the place but the the ideal is to have have open and free competition where people are able to draw and redraw those lines as, as frequently as possible
0: Right. And allow those, those uh, competitive outlets there in the market to find the best method as well, that you're not going to find out what the best method is. You're going to find out whether one method works or not. If the government decides to legislate this and pass it down.
2: That's right. And and you are going to discover everybody's different, right? You know, lo- where you want the line, Logan is going to be different from where I want it and, and where I want it for my kids. Uh, and that's, mm. that's fine. That's, that's, uh, that's a normal society, you know. That we we shouldn't look for one answer to every uh, every solution, or one solution to every problem.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, right, and that makes perfect sense. Where it's like I look at I look at who is in Congress right now, and um, I I can't say I'm pumped about uh, Mark Zuckerberg being able to draw his own lines because it is such a large platform. But at the end of the day, I do have to lean back on. I guess I would rather have you know. Um, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, but, you know, and Parler and, you know, and maybe, maybe throughout this, it will create the rise of competitor social medias to where you, where you have a platform that is just going to build out its server infrastructure to say like, Hey, look, we can rival Facebook. If you don't like being censored, if you don't like, you know, if you're a conservative and you don't like your Facebook post being taken off, or if you're a podcaster or, or like a YouTube streamer and you don't like us shutting off, you don't like YouTube shutting off your live stream midstream, when you say something about China, the, you know, the, the algorithms go ding, 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 then it's like come to us. And then, and I think that, that I would, I would much prefer that even though that there is, there is this, this concentrated power in a few platforms right now, I would rather have open and fair competition and have the market work its way through all of this, than have people like Bernie Sanders and um, I mean, just any, any, any Senator, any legislator be able to decide what that line is for 300 million Americans. Right. Um, it, it's a, it's such a, it's such a, a skewed, um, power structure at that point where it's and I agree with the 100% where I lean to it's on, almost on every issue where it's like well I'm not sure how I feel personally about it or maybe we should let people decide but I will always lean it's like it shouldn't be the government's choice like they shouldn't get the first say in in where the lines are drawn
0: I'm curious what you guys think on is this simply that we're run by a Congress, a House, an executive branch that just does not understand these basic economic ideas? Or do you think it's more of a situation of when you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail and they just have the power to legislate. So that's kind of their knee jerk fix to everything.
2: Well, uh, you, you know, the internet is a series of tubes, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the line from a hearing a few years ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is that is very concerning. Um, one thing I think I would point out, though, is that the typical congressperson actually does not really want to pass laws that, you know, they don't want to go on the record. They don't. Yeah. Despite what we we tend to perceive, I don't think they're that power hungry so much as they are afraid. That's the incentives of their office. And so they tend to abdicate their authority to uh regulators. And that's a concern. You know, Congress has, you know, wholesale for, uh, you know, several generations now, given a lot delegated, probably unconstitutionally, enormous amount of powers to unelected regulators. And they're the ones who really make the decision. Now, where do regulators get their information? Well, it's this, this isn't conspiracy theory. Um, They actually need to interact with the firms with that who, for, uh, with whom they um, uh, actually regulate if they want to understand the market. The best source of information for them is to haul the firms in and say, how does this work? How does that work? And through that very natural, you know, totally well-intentioned process, they get what's called captured, but it's information—it's captured by information. It's that it doesn't necessarily even mean that there's anybody without, with nefarious intent. It's just that on a regular basis, the people with whom they interact and also they hire uh, our uh, ex- in- industry insiders. And so they get a very skewed view of things and uh, that it's typically the view of the people who are incumbent providers, incumbent uh, uh, firms, not the upstarts who have a new and different model.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that's that's all that's all really interesting. Um, Well, I hear hear some kids in the background. And uh, um, (laughs) and so so I think let's just call it for uh, for the sake of a great conversation. Mr. Mitchell, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. Um, As always, I greatly appreciate your insight and your time. Um, You can find uh, well here, I'll let you I'll let you plug your own stuff.
2: Oh, awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks guys so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's always fun chatting with you. Um, yeah. Mercatus.org. Um, We'd love to hear from you and love to uh, continue the conversation.
0: Awesome. Thank you again. Really appreciate it. Hey, that's it. Just love having Mr. Mitchell on, man. It's uh, it's fun to get somebody who's got the knowledge base that you have that uh, and it, it makes me go home and pat myself on the back. Every time you say something that I, kind of had a good idea on, and then you just hammer home the point of why it's the state's fault. And I I come out of here just feeling stronger like a libertarian every time I talk to you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I always love hanging out with you guys. I appreciate it.
1: Absolutely.
0: Well, until next
2: time, guys. Take care.
1: Thank you very much for listening Against the Mall podcast. Logan Carpenter, Matthew Billingsley, Dr. Matthew Mitchell joining us. from the mountains of New Mexico, two of us from the mountains of New Mexico, one from the big city in Texas. Um, if you if you guys like, please uh, if you guys like the show, please like, share, subscribe. A five star review goes a very long way for the algorithms for us. Tell one person. Um, you know we need y'all's participation to really help spread this podcast and in turn help spread the ideas of liberty. And um, thanks again, and we'll see you next week.